0: Smarties, we are very excited to welcome back Penny Williams to the podcast. Penny has been on our podcast multiple times, and we've linked those episodes in the show notes. And we have also been guests on her podcast, and we're going to go ahead and link those episodes in the show notes for you as well. In this episode, we talk about the power of communication and being in community with other like-minded parents. She talks to us about accepting learners' neurodiversity, parenting without ego and getting to know your child deeply and profoundly. She shares with us her wisdom in tidbits like kids who feel good, do good. Pro tip, same goes for adults. And she also shares what she tells parents to let go of completely and talks about acceptance as a practice. We are also excited to share our extended conversation with Penny on Patreon. Patreon is our online community where you can support the work that we do here at Learn Smarter Podcast for a monthly donation. For a $5 a month donation, you can hear our extended conversation with Penny and all the other extended conversations we've had with our fabulous guests in the 208 episodes of this podcast and other freebies and goodies that we only share there. And if you'd like to support the work that we do with a $10 a month donation, then we will also gift you early access to each episode a week before they come out here. So in our deep dive on Patreon with Penny, we talk about lying. She talks about how everything that happens is neutral, and we are the ones that control our reaction and the story we tell ourselves. In this conversation, we talk about episode 179 with Annie, which we hear from you, Smarties, is a fan favorite, and we talk about how lying is indicative of something else, that it is a symptom. She talks about how learners will lie to us to tell us what they think we want to hear and how learners are trying to protect us when they're lying. She shares her deep nuggets of truth and wisdom when she says lying is not a character flaw. So if you want to go and hear that extended conversation and all the other ones, link to that is www.patreon.com slash LearnSmarterPodcast. And of course, you'll have access to all the previous goodies. Now, let's dig in.
1: You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder. Is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The educational therapy podcast.
2: Hi, Smarties! Welcome to episode two hundred and eight of Learn Smarter, the educational therapy podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts, and I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are so happy to have Penny Williams back with us. Hi, Penny.
0: Hey, ladies. Hi.
2: <laughs> I love when she goes into that voice.
0: (laughs) Me too. Penny, we're going to go ahead and we will link all the episodes that you have been on on our podcast in the show notes. Awesome. And maybe we'll link some of the ones that we've been on with you on your podcast. But why don't you take a second and tell us who you are and what you do and who you do it for?
1: Yeah. So in a nutshell, I am a parent coach for neurodiverse families. I have online training courses for parents. I hold some online conferences once or twice a year. Um, I was doing mom retreats pre-COVID and have some books and anything else I can get my hands dirty on pretty much. And also, of course, coaching parents one-on-one virtually as well. So I started down that path when I had a kid who got diagnosed with ADHD. And then we added autism spectrum disorder and anxiety and learning differences and you know the whole alphabet soup. And There really wasn't enough information out there for a parent. You know, there was no guidance. You get a diagnosis, you probably get handed a prescription, and then you're left to figure it out. And so I, of course, was obsessed with figuring it out, right? For years, Mm -hmm. I put everything else aside, Mm -hmm. and it was all about ADHD all the time, which was brutal on us and the family. And thankfully, I learned to calm that down over the years. But I looked at it kind of in the rear view after a few years and said, if I had to do all this work and I put all this together, why would I not share it? And that's where the work was born. It started with a blog, then books, then courses, summits, coaching. You know, it just kept building. Podcasts. Oh, I forgot the podcast.
0: All the things. Yep. <laughs>
1: the podcast too. So lots of stuff out there and just really trying to help parents not struggle in the ways that we did starting out, which was 13 years ago. And thank goodness, there's so much more available now than there was then, but it's still a hard path. You know, it's still a path that you really need some guidance on. I don't think any of us are specifically wired to raise kids with differences. I think it has to be a learned behavior for the most part. And so that's why I do want to do.
0: I love that there's sort of this trend happening in the interviews that we've been doing lately, and our audience knows and Penny knows that we record out of order. But there's this trend in the conversations that we've been having lately of people from different – backgrounds and everybody is trying to tackle the same sort of from their perspective of getting information out there. It was Mm -hmm. reason that we launched our podcast from the perspective of educational therapists. We just wanted this resource to be available and accessible for people. And we didn't want the finances or where you live to be a stopgap. And that's sort of the beauty of the world that we live in now is that we can help each other in a much more, hopefully, democratized way.
1: You know, there's some benefits to like podcasting, of course, is available for people for free. Our summits, there's always a free option for that as well. And so mm-hmm. in kind of expanding in that way, it's actually really allowed me, I think, to serve more people and
0: mm-hmm. serve
1: them better. You know, people who, when we start out with a diagnosis... We didn't have the money. We still don't have the money, but we definitely didn't have the money for like all of these crazy therapies that aren't covered under insurance. Like nothing was covered under insurance and it was very, very expensive. And, you know, we don't have special schools here for learning differences. And, you know, so there's a lot of things that are really governed by the amount of money or the amount of like locational access you have. And it's been really, really rewarding to be able to kind of break some of that barrier and that wall for people and give them access.
2: Give them access and also know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. Every time, you know, a parent calls or the parent gets a diagnosis or something, they feel so alone and on an island. And so I always love your message and what it was like raising a neurodiverse child and You're still raising him, even though he's of age. And the struggles change, but that's okay. And there's a lot to be said for what you have put out there with your own struggle.
0: And your own story is powerful, too.
2: It really is
1: and that's true for everybody, you know, I am just a normal person, right? I'm just an ordinary person who said, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to share because honestly, the very first share was me looking for people to tell me what was happening with my kid. It wasn't, I'm going to share my story very much. It was somebody please find me and help me. Right. And That catharsis kind of made the whole thing grow because when people started finding me and I started finding them and, you know, that interaction, that suddenly not feeling so alone, you know, having those connections and seeing that it wasn't my parenting, you know, when you're super isolated and you're struggling as a parent, you assume that it's you and your parenting. And when you start meeting other people who have a similar struggle, you say, okay, well, If it was just me, then all these people wouldn't get it, but I'm finding a lot of people who get it. So it must not just be me, right? There has to be something to it. I'll tell you, Facebook, it's such a hard thing these days, but back in 2009, I think when I joined, my son was like a year diagnosed and it was a lifesaver to be able to find other parents who were going through something similar, you know, it was really a pivot point just to realize, okay, it's not me. It's not what I'm doing or not doing. So now where do we
0: go? Mm-hmm. I love that you always share that. You being vulnerable and sort of exposing the truth of what was happening in your home and what you were experiencing as a parent drew the right people to you to be in community with you. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned it, but why don't you share a little bit about the summit that you recently hosted? Because it's going to kind of guide our conversation today. So...
1: Yeah, so we just had the Decoding Behavior Summit back in February, and we will do another one on that topic again next year in 2023. But our focus for that summit was transforming behavior while also honoring a kid's neurodiversity. So we're accepting that they're neurodiverse, we're accepting that their brain works different. School is different for them. You know, social interaction is different for them, right? We're accepting it. We're not fighting it. But we're also saying this can get better and we're going to help our kids navigate the world that we live in. Mm. So we're not fighting ADHD, autism, anxiety. We're saying, okay, it's here. You know, it came to the party at the beginning and it's going to stay. What can we do with that? And there's many pluses, you know, people who are neurodiverse or creative, intelligent, warm, caring people. So there's lots of benefit there. But as a parent, we get swallowed up by the struggle and the differences, you know, freaking out that our kid isn't meeting expectations, right, with school or maybe on a, a sports team or whatever they're doing. That can really take over. And so it was really important to us that we were acknowledging that our kids are neurodiverse and we're good with that. The foundation was neurodiversity acceptance, right? And then we built from there. Then it was about how do we help them create their best life, whatever that looks like for them, that individual kid, right? Because everybody's so different. We're in such a culture of conformity. And yet we should be in a culture of individuality. We should be raising individuals. We should be like applauding people who think differently or are super creative. You know, my daughter just graduated from college a few months ago as an art major. And every day when she does something creative, my mind is blown. I can't even imagine sitting down and like even knowing where to start, like her talent just my brain can't get there, right? And so there's so many different beautiful things that come from being individuals, that come from being different than each other. And we really need to start talking about that more. You know, we're talking a lot more about neurodiversity than we used to. We really need to be talking even more about the fact that everybody's different and that's great. Because kids start to feel so bad about themselves when they're different. They think that it's something that's wrong with them and it wrecks their self-esteem. It wrecks their confidence. You know, when we say, okay, I see you, I see who you are and I honor it. I'm good with it. I love you. You're amazing. I'm not trying to change you. It creates such a different dynamic for our kids It opens the door for confidence. It opens the door for their own acceptance of themselves. And that goes so far.
2: I was going to say the thing that I think parents don't realize when they're trying to make themselves feel better or, you know, when they're really feeling anxiety about their child being different is that control. Trying to control it instead of embracing it. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of parents don't realize that's what they're doing.
0: I think it's control, but I also think learning how to parent without ego is really, really, really challenging. So I guess, how do you sort of respond to that conversation?
1: We are taught to see our kids as a reflection of ourselves. Right. And so that becomes an automatic problem, right? That Whatever our child does, we think is a reflection of us. It's a reflection of our parenting. It's a reflection of our ideals, our moral values, all these things, right? And we have to really cast that aside because that is controlling our parenting. Like, I don't want anybody else telling me how to parent. And again, it comes back to this individuality. We want to raise individuals. And to do that, we need to parent the kid we have. Strengths, weaknesses, talents, flaws, whatever. The whole package, we have to parent that kid, not parent in the way that maybe we were raised or parent in the way that the books say. You know, when you have a kid who doesn't toe that neurotypical line and even when you do, it's really important to really truly see the kid you have in great detail, very deeply. And, you know, I talk some in one of my courses about getting to know your child, and people say, well, of course I know my child. But how deeply do you really know your child, right? If you're not really sort of having these conversations and noticing and building your awareness about, What goes on with your child and when, then you sort of know your kid, but you don't know them on a level in which you can really tailor your parenting and where you can really let them be their true selves. And we have such a problem right now in our culture with more and more kids, especially teens, really want to be their authentic selves and our traditional values, you know, from the past many decades... Are creating a lot of friction with that and the more friction there is the more anxiety there is the more people feel bad about themselves the more they're trying to hide who they are like we're creating so much stress for our kids by not being open to just letting them be who they are to just letting them navigate and figure that out Right. We're trying to control. And again, just what Steph said control is a big piece of this because we want to have control as a parent to have control over that message that other people are creating, the story they're creating about our parenting. Right. We want to have control because we're anxious, we're worried about our kids, we're afraid that they'll get hurt or that they might have to go through something uncomfortable. And this is where I lived for a long time because. I am an anxious person. And I was definitely a helicopter parent. And so I was just doing everything for them. And I was really like, walking around with my arms out wide, like trying to create this huge bubble around them, right everywhere they went. And what I learned later was that I was preventing them from learning how to navigate the world. And I was causing them to do it in my way, instead of them figuring out their way and what works for them and what's true for them. Like this idea of what is true for an individual is really important when we have kids with differences. We have to see who they are and where they are. And that then informs what kind of behavior we're seeing, what's fueling it. How could we make it better? How could we help our kids? You know, kids who feel good do good. Adults who feel good do good. You have to feel good to be on your A game, right? And to have something to give to others. Our kids can't feel good if we're controlling them, if we're not letting them be themselves, if they're trying to hide part of who they are, if they're trying or wishing that they were somebody different. They're not feeling good through all that, right? And so that's when we see behavior issues or spiking anxiety or depression or things like that. You know, there's a lot of consequences to not just letting our kids be who they are or ourselves, honestly. And acceptance is a big piece of that. And it's a journey that takes a while and it takes practice. And I think, you know, most parents really need to work at acceptance. I was just on the phone earlier today with a parent on a coaching call and the diagnosis was fairly new. And she had this aha that, you know, she was saying 90% of my day, I'm thinking about this one child who's been struggling all these years has this new diagnosis, but has been struggling for many years before that. And she said, you know, there's another child in my family, there's myself, and we get maybe 10%. And, It's so overwhelming and it's so much pressure. And I said, Yeah, you know, you've recognized it. Now you have to create the balance. Now you have to do the work for yourself of accepting ADHD, accepting where you are, where your kids are. And then you can create space for more positive things. You know, as long as you're ruminating. On something negative, your brain is wiring for the negative. There's no room for joy. There's no room to create any sort of peaceful moments if you're constantly worried and stressed and, you know, freaking out. And rightfully so. I'm not trying to say that when parents are worried about their kids, there's something wrong with that. That's just instinct. And there's a reason we have that instinct. But we do have to find the right. Temperature for that and the right balance for that. And it can't be all day, every day. It can't be everything we think about. You know, when Luke was younger, when he first got diagnosed, all I talked about was ADHD all the time, all the time. Nobody wanted to come to the dinner table anymore. It was nonstop. My phone stopped ringing. I wasn't doing my work in which I worked out of the home at the time, you know, for someone else. And it was just bad. And one day, all of a sudden, I don't remember what it was that sort of triggered my awakening. But I was like, you're driving every person away from you and you're miserable too. So no wonder nobody wants to be around you, right? I was so obsessed with helping, but what I was doing was actually making it worse. That awareness is huge for parents, We talk a lot in the behavior summit that we just had, but also in our behavior revolution program about the fact that we have to offer co-regulation for our kids. So if we don't feel good, it's really hard for us to help them to feel good either, right? Because we have that energy that we're casting off. We're grumpy or we're frustrated or we're down about our child's diagnosis, which also doesn't send them the right message either. That, you know, there's something wrong with them, right? I'm trying to fix your ADHD. It's a terrible thing. That's what they're hearing um, within those actions.
2: In my own life, I feel this about accepting and not focusing on the things that are preventing other things from happening, right? And so I hear you because I feel like even if you're somebody who is a teacher or don't have kids or isn't happening with your kids. It can be between adults as well. Your friends, your partner, everything. This is so much bigger than it just being about kids. But Mm -hmm. I think if we can take that understanding towards kids and help them understand, it's going to go a long way. And my question to you is, what are some examples of things that you tell parents to let go of? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know it's a
1: struggle so many things, right? Number one would be grades. That's the biggest one. And that was probably the biggest thing that I had to let go of too, because I have this really high IQ kid who couldn't pass a class if left to his own devices, right? And so I was trying to reconcile that. And I had to learn that IQ and intelligence has nothing to do with functioning. They're two different parts of the brain. And so you can be really smart and not be good at school, which you know is something that nobody would ever think was a true statement. Another thing is sometimes the social struggles as an introvert and a kid with social anxiety. I had some friends, but I didn't have a lot of friends and I was more comfortable that way. Some kids, teens, young adults in my family, They much prefer one or two friends that are good friends over quantity. But so often parents will say, I'm so worried my kid doesn't have enough friends. They are not social enough. They're not, you know, going and meeting their friends all weekend or spending time with other kids in person. And again, it comes back to parenting the kid you have. Is that because that's what your kid prefers? Or is it because there's a problem? And so much of this comes down to that question. Is my kid okay with this? Is this true to who they are? Or is this indicative of an issue that I need to help them with? So if my kid wanted 20 friends and had two and was so upset about it constantly, then yes, there's something that they need help with, right? But if my kid only has two friends and they're super happy and comfortable there's not a problem there right and so often we have to let go of our own ideas of childhood and our own ideas of what makes us happy as a kid because it's not the same for everyone
2: not only is it not the same but it's also not the same now as it was for us everybody's got to take a step back and say this is different
1: mhm yeah and even now you know we're 2 years into covid things are so much different than 2 years ago like The world has changed completely right now. And we have to recognize too that that changes behavior, ours and our kids, right? We're more stressed. We're more isolated. We are, you know, worried about, Different things going on in the world or worried about getting sick or whatever it is, worried about getting enough social interaction, right? Now we're swinging the other way where everybody's like, oh, I need to see people. Um, and we're starting to do that. But I don't think that we recognized how big of an impact the pandemic has had um, on all of us as far as mental and emotional health. I think a lot of us are just different people. And I think for our kids, it's amplified because they're developing. And when you have extra stress in your life or trauma, you know, many kids lost a family member during the pandemic. You know, that's traumatic during development. It changes the brain. It affects behavior, of course. And so we have to really be very aware again it's all about the awareness we have to be aware of what's going on for our kids and for the older kids talk to them about it and not in a poking prodding way that our teens are just going to shut us down (laughs) learn that the hard way for sure you know just saying I see things are hard for you and I'm here if you want to talk because kids will come and talk when they're ready but if I go to my kid which is what I used to do I see that you're having a hard time. What's going on? Tell me, tell me, tell me. And he would say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And I'd be like, no, but I have to fix it. You have to tell me. I can't stand it. You have to tell me, right? And all he needed was some quiet time to sort of work through it some. And then when I took the pressure off and I said, when you're ready, he would come talk to me. When I was super pressured I never would be able to help him with it because he would never come and talk to me under those conditions. So again, knowing your kid, there are some kids who really need to talk something out the minute it happens, right? And just letting them know all the time and showing them that they can trust us, that we're open to helping and we're always available to them makes a big difference in what they're going through. And again, it goes back to very foundational piece of, We have to feel good to do good.
2: Let's talk about behavior that might be not grade-related, but feeling a little more extreme.
1: So like aggression.
2: Mm -hmm. Like ODD, diagnoses, those types of things that some parents are struggling with. You know, the kids that run away. I mean, I know that this is very extreme, but there are versions of this.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: It's all a scale, right? So it's like the kids that are ditching class or the kids that are not doing something or they are doing something because something is hard. So I guess my question is, you know, some of these things do need attention, but what kind of attention?
1: And that's a really good question. And, you know, when we have this conversation about acceptance, we're not saying to accept negative behavior. We're not saying to accept that, you know, your kid can't take care of themselves now, so they never will. Like, that's not the message. The message is accept who they are at their core and what they're struggling with and work on what needs working on, right? There's so much that needs to improve in a lot of ways for these kids. So we're not trying to change the core of who we are. We're trying to help them navigate the world that we live in. So for instance, a lot of these sort of what I call red light words come up from parents, disrespect, defiance, right? And I always take those as a hard stop. Those are not words you should be using to describe a child because they're still learning and growing. And when you're saying that a child is disrespectful, what you're saying is it feels disrespectful to me. Often that child does not intend to be disrespectful. They're having a hard time. They don't yet have the skills to communicate their frustration in a more appropriate way. So it comes out feeling on the receiving end like disrespect. But that doesn't help you. If I say, well, my kid is disrespectful, what do I do with that? How do I change that situation? Punish him? That's not going to change it. Right. I have to look at why is he speaking to me in this tone for instance why is he refusing to do what i'm asking and there's so many different things that that could be and until you target that root of the behavior where it's coming from what's triggering it you can't change it you know it's such a basic principle and yet we don't talk about it we don't think about it until we do talk about it
2: yeah it's so true
1: And so for those kids who have these more extreme behaviors, sometimes meltdowns, aggression, what feels like blatant disrespect, like they just don't care about anything. They're skipping class. They're failing class. I believe that every challenging behavior happens for a reason. There is a reason. And it is not because I just want to piss you off. You know, the kid who's skipping class isn't skipping class because he wants to make the teachers and his parents angry. Yep, he's not. He's avoiding something, mm-hmm. and the no reason for that avoidance: anxiety, learning disabilities, emotional or mental health struggles, feeling like an outcast socially. There's a million reasons that a kid could skip a class, and it's a signal that they need help. They're having a hard time. It is not a signal that they are "quotes bad." or lazy lazy or don't care there's always a reason and we throw these kids away because we assume that they're just being honry right they're just being ugly because they want to be ugly nobody does that nobody does that and so we have to look at why is this happening is it an environmental issue is it a lagging skill Is it extra sensitive nervous system? Is it rejection sensitive dysphoria? There's so, so, so many things that can play into every behavior. Sensory is a big one too for our kids. We have to get to the bottom of that. We can't just say, stop being disrespectful. And often when that happens, we're screaming it back, right? And so now we're co-escalating, Because we're not giving them any calm to attune to. We're giving them fire right back, right? And so we're just making it worse. And this is like the biggest aha for any parent of a kid with behavioral challenges. Like when you realize that your instinctual way of responding is making things worse, Mm -hmm. it's a pivot, right? And it's a really powerful pivot. Because now I can stay calm because I know my kid isn't giving me a hard time. He's having a hard time, right? Which has been my parenting mantra for years. Every time something starts to go down, I'm like, nope, he's having a hard time, (laughs) right? And it's helped me so much to stay calm, to be able to be that calm anchor that he can attune to, because our brains are wired to mirror and respond in kind. So yes, when your kid yells at you, I hate you, mom, of course, Your quills are going to go up and your instinct, your body, your biology is going to want to yell back and maybe yell something not nice back, right? And we have to have the awareness to override that and to meet our kids with calm and with a level head and with that brain-based lens. Instead of looking at behavior as behavior, we need to look at behavior as what is this telling me about the way my kid's brain is working right now and what they need.
2: I can't tell you how much that resonates with me because I was just thinking back. We did an episode about sensory processing disorder, and I, as a small child, would throw a fit when my mom put socks on me Mm -hmm. that they weren't straight, and my mom thought that I was just being difficult, and it actually was really hurting me. Then when I was older and able to tell her what was really going on, because I remember she... Was very much like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. It's something as little as that. I was a good kid. Like, I didn't cause waves. So, for me to throw a fit about like leaving the house because I couldn't walk because it hurt is such a small example of something that was going on with me that if there had been a change or I could just wear flip-flops as a child, because that's my preference anyway, it wouldn't have been a problem. Yeah. So something so small can have such a big effect, especially as kids get older and behaviors get bigger.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if your mom had known to ask you what's going on, right? If you said it hurt to trust that it hurt and to try to figure out why, right? It wouldn't have been such a big deal because you would have Come to some conclusion that could result in a change. Right. And I mean, my son is the same way. Socks were (laughs) many, many meltdowns over socks. We bought seamless socks and whatever. And, and, you know, it was coming to mind when you were talking. For me, I need symmetry. Like my brain is so weird. Oh,
2: interesting. It Uh
1: needs symmetry in a way I can't even describe. And so, like, if I'm brushing my teeth in the morning and I put, water in my hand to gargle and rinse my mouth. And before I turn off the faucet and dry, I have to get the other hand the same amount of wet uh. or my brain breaks out. I almost didn't buy the house that we live in because there was two different things on the sides of the fireplace. They weren't exactly the same. There's only a half wall on one side and a full wall on the other. And I thought I might die if I had to sit and look like (laughs) this is how much my brain needs symmetry. And it's just my brain. Right. And I've learned to live with it. I deal with it. But as a kid, if that had been a big problem, like I could see it being a big problem because who would think? And I think that's really the core of what we're trying to dig down to is that we have to ask questions. We have to wonder why. We can't just take things at face value. We have to wonder why and we have to dig until we figure out why, until we can answer that question.
2: Yeah. And it can't be that because I said so.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I lived with that parent.
0: <laughs> i think we all did <laughs>
1: how well yes i lunch with that parent that or ask your mom oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> because i said so or ask your mom
0: ask your mom mm-hmm. he's still
1: a man of few words but i love him <laughs> <laughs> but again we're coming back to that whole difference in generation right as parents we are generationally separated from our kids and We have to have an awareness around that too, that what was the norm or expected when we were kids doesn't mean that it's the same now that our kids are kids. I mean, especially for those of us who grew up without computers at home and Mm -hmm. phones everywhere we went, right? Like, I always feel like this really old lady when I talk to my kids about the fact that, you know, I was 20 and got in a car and went somewhere and somehow I found it and I didn't die. And I'm at
0: my way home. Like yeah. <laughs> Thomas Brothers guide maps. <laughs> but for me, it was printing out the map quest. Yes.
1: <laughs> my daughter and I were just having this discussion the other day in the car. And I was like, do you realize that when we moved to the town we live in, I was a real estate broker and we had map books and we would have to keep pulling over because we'd have uh-huh. to switch and find where the map picked up on another page because we were trying yeah, to drive. <laughs> And she just kind of rolled her eyes. And I was like, you know, navigation's pretty cool, isn't it?
2: (laughs) Listen, I'm aging myself, but that's what I got for my 16th birthday was the Thomas Brothers
0: guy.
1: Pretty smart on my mom's part, but. Like the world changes, you know, and as parents, we can't get stuck in where we were at one point. Mm -hmm. We have to not keep up with the times, but just be open-minded. Like we're not asking you to change. We're just asking you to be open-minded and to really see your kid for who they are and what they need.
2: I love it. I feel like we could just end it there. I think that's the perfect ending.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And we're going to chat more with you on Patreon. And so can you do our signature sign off?
1: Have a great week, Smarties.
0: Okay. <laughs> Thanks.